Hi, I'm Katherine Delgado. And I'm Priya Kamath. And you're listening to FIRST. This episode of FIRST features Valerie Tran, who will be talking to us today about racist housing policies called redlining and its health and environmental consequences. Before we jump into this episode, we wanted to say that we are now available on Apple Podcasts, and we hope you can listen to our episodes there and leave us a review. But apart from that, thank you for tuning in, and we'll now get into the episode. So Valerie and I met um, back in freshman year when we both took the same AP Human Geography class, which actually relates to our topic today. But first, Val, do you want to introduce yourself for our listeners? I would love to. Thank you for having me today. It is such an honor. Um, As you know, my name is Valerie Tran. I am a senior at Mira Mesa High School. And also, I am the vice president of a volunteer outreach club called the Challenge Athletes Foundation. So if you're listening from Mira Mesa, go check that out. Yeah, that's all about me. So Val, to start, can you tell us what motivated you to get involved with environmentalist initiatives and especially the intersectional environmentalism movement? Yeah, um, as silly as it may seem, um, I read this article about how the polar bears will become extinct in about 50 years due to the effects of climate change when I was about eight. And when I read this, I burst into tears and I was crying and like praying to Jesus saying oh please don't take the polar bears please don't take the polar bears because they're my favorite animal at the time and ever since then I've just always been interested in environmental policies and problems that are going on in the world today and now I don't you know cry over polar bears anymore but um it all like these issues still bother me and I'm pretty I'm a pretty carefree person so I just feel like when something bothers me it's either really important to me and throughout the years I've just been reading up and watching a bunch bunch of documentaries about um, climate change the oil industry um, coral reef and ocean acidification And also in high school, I got the chance to take this class called AP Environmental Science. So that really helped open my mind and, I know, just helped me dive in deeper into the environmentalist movement. And the intersectional environmentalism movement is actually fairly new. It's spearheaded by Leah Thomas, who started getting a lot of popularity with this movement, especially during the beginning of June, during the whole Black Lives Matter protests. And since it is social justice and environmentalism combined, it just really tied in at the time. And I got into it when it first launched, and I've been really dedicated to it ever since. Yeah, I've had the privilege of knowing Val for almost four years now and like having watched her become so dedicated to the environment has been amazing to watch. 
And Val also tutors my niece, who's about six years old. And like their lessons are supposed to be on like vocabulary and writing and, and like reading. But then Val somehow finds a way to incorporate like environment and climate change and just protecting um, our communities and the place we live in from climate change and all those issues. So she's really dedicated and she's also starting her own intersectional environmentalism club at our school. Um, so I'm really proud of her and I'm so glad she's here today. But like I said, um, Val and I met during our AP Human Geography class and redlining was a topic that we learned. So Val, I wanna ask you, what is redlining and how did this housing policy exclude communities of color in the United States? So the term redlining describes the um, refusal of loans to someone because they live in an area deemed to be a poor financial risk. And um, in the 1930s, the Federal Housing Administration created these color-coded maps of the largest cities in the U.S. And then they broke them down into four different areas. Um, and these were red, yellow, blue, and green. In the red zones, there were the foreign-born, low-class whites, and African-American families, and these areas were considered hazardous and undesirable to live in, mainly because of the low income and people of color in these communities. And in the yellow zones, they were considered somewhat declining, and these areas had the working-class, middle-class families but on the lower spectrum. And the blue zones were the desirable zones occupied by these white collar families. So your average middle class, two kids type of family. And in the green zones were considered the best areas to live in. And they were inhabited by businessmen, people in finance, the private sector, the upper middle class to say. And these green zones shared one common characteristic, and that was the absence of minorities, especially African-Americans. And the practice of redlining institutionalized and spread racial covenants, and covenants are a legally enforceable contract in a deed. And these covenants were written um, on these houses to keep out the minorities and lower income families. And after decades of activism from the NAACP and other groups, the U.S. Supreme Court in 1948 ruled that these restrictive covenants could not be enforced. And finally, in 1968, the Fair Housing Act made the act of writing these covenants illegal. But obviously, um, its policy meant to encourage equal housing opportunities but the disadvantages faced by minorities were already so great, it would be difficult to undo on all of these houses. And even though these covenants are now legally unenforceable, they're still worked into the housing market today because these redline communities um, suffer these damages, damaging effects. So redlining was initially enacted inside the 1930s and it has since then been made illegal. But can you explain for us the impacts of these racist housing policies inside the modern world? Yeah, um, we can see the results of how redlining affects present day socioeconomic outcomes. 
um, because these covenants were a tool to deny people of certain races and colors housing. And through this casual link between covenants in the past and present day socioeconomic outcomes, we find that houses that were protected by these covenants have on average a 15% higher property value today than the houses that weren't. And consequently, these areas have substantially lower African-American and minority residences and home ownership rates. And by reframing contemporary policy through an equity lens to help mitigate these damages, very powerful arguments can be made about the effects of racism, especially noting that these areas like Michigan and Chicago, for example, didn't enforce segregation through Jim Crow laws. And the effects of benigning don't simply stop at housing um, because when an area has a collectively low income, which the red line zones do, the area becomes underfunded. And when this happens, landlords neglect their properties, the city services deteriorate, and new businesses tend to stray away from these, these areas. Um, so as property values drop, property taxes drop. And unfortunately, the primary way that Americans pay for public schools are through these property taxes. And so we see that areas with more valuable homes have better funded schools, higher paid teachers, and more advanced school facilities. And all this prompts a greater emphasis on higher education, which shows the education and income gap between whiter, richer Americans compared to lower class minority families. And this snowball effect can explain these disparities more clearly, you can say. And even the life expectancies in these neighborhoods, the white neighborhoods, are higher than their black counterparts because of the urban planning that benefits the green zones. People of color or are more likely to live near industrial plants that spew toxic fumes and more likely to live farther away from grocery stores with fresh organic produce and in places where water isn't drinkable like in Flint, Michigan. And these environmental hazards affect their living situations and poor black neighborhoods are more likely to have crumbling infrastructure and homes with toxic paint than their white counterparts. And this lack of environmental protection and resor of resources cause health risks to skyrocket in these poor communities. And people of color have higher incidences of cancer, asthma, and heart diseases when they live in these neighborhoods. And many of these neighborhoods are built along highways and interstates, which cause large amounts of noise and light pollution. And pollution, environmental degradation serve, have a severe impact on these poor and simply just increase their poverty. And people in red line neighborhoods don't have access to healthcare and have a higher risk of dying prematurely. And those who do have access to healthcare may not have the best resources available to them. And in the United States itself, approximately 6 million children are 
urban poor and these six million children have a majority of minority family minority races and environmental risks aren't uniformly distributed among groups of like just certain people age poverty and minority status place most groups at a disproportionately high risk for these emotion environmental diseases and when such groups are exposed to these chemicals and factors these affect access to health information and healthcare. Poor access to health information and healthcare means less health promotion and the delayed recognition of exposure and treatment allows effects to accumulate. And even temperature changes are apparent when comparing non-covenanted homes to the covenanted homes. And across more than 100 cities, a recent study found formerly redlined neighborhoods are today five degrees hotter in summer than those areas such as those in the green zone. Redlined neighborhoods which remain lower income and more likely to have black or Hispanic residences consistently have far fewer trees and parks to help cool the air. And instead of these trees and green spaces, they have more paved surfaces such as asphalt lots or nearby highways that abs both absorb and radiate heat. And heat is the, nation, the nation's deadliest weather disaster, killing as many as 12,000 people in a year. And now as global warming brings more intense heat waves, cities have to drop plans to adapt and confront this historical legacy that has left communities of color far more vulnerable to the heat. And the lack of trees have adverse climate, negative climate um, effects. And unlike paved surfaces, these trees have roots and the soil around them are porous, which soak up water and reduce floods during downpours. And in, as you can see, in the 2015-2005 Hurricane Katrina, which struck the southeastern United States, casualties and damages were incredibly worse in low-income African-American neighborhoods than in other areas. And these neighborhoods had lack of trees and more, a more presence of asphalt and concrete. And not only this, the infrastructure from the old homes couldn't hold up these houses on their foundation and were swept away by the hurricane. And in communities like this, who are neglected by the government and have a high percentage of minority residencies, are often consciously and unconsciously designated as sacrifice zones. And these zones are areas that are targeted for the disproportionate burden of pollution for the byproducts of consumerism such as industrial waste and this is where our industrial disregard has negative effects on society and consumerism has grown on such a large scale that sacrifice zones are found in communities globally and i just want to say thank you for bringing attention to this issue because i think Redlining is a prime example of how institutionalized racism continues to affect communities of color today and 
stands in the way of progress. So I think it's really important that we tackle this issue. Um, and going off of that, I wanted to ask, what is the intersectional environmentalism movement and um, what are they doing to help marginalized communities and limit the effects of these policies? So the intersectional environmentalism movement strives to bring together social justice and environmental protection. And Leah Thomas spearheaded the IE movement and she describes it as an inclusive version of environmentalism that, adv that advocates both for the protection of the people and the planet. And it identifies the ways in which injustice, injustices happening to marginalized communities and earths are interconnected. <clears throat> and it brings injustices done to the most vulnerable communities and the earth because these minorities don't have much of a political voice as they should and can't necessarily stand up for themselves. So this organization really works to bring a new political light to this issue. Not only this, it also, the philosophy of this movement is that the world that we are part of the world and we depend on nature and nature doesn't exist only for humans but for all species and our success depends on learning how life sustains itself and integrating these wisdoms into the ways we think and act hopefully like in the factories and in the energy sector especially with fossil fuel companies such as oil drilling and natural gas because their operations disrupt not only the land they work on, but the people living on that land. And these environmental policies are really emphasized with this organization. And that's sort of like the main goal of what they do. Oh, so your words have been really powerful. And I'm really intrigued to be hearing the effects of redlining because I never really realized the extent to which these housing policies have affected Americans who live in low-income neighborhoods even today. So can you tell us, and especially our listeners who might be interested, um, how we can get involved and make an impact inside this movement? Yeah, um, as young people, well, the most obvious thing we could do is support or join youth-led youth -led movements. And because we have the most at stake when it comes to climate change, our futures are on the line if we can't meet the 1.5 cap on global warming. And all over the world, kids are already taking matters into their own hands in inspiring ways. And just joining, like following intersectional environmentalism on Instagram, for instance, is already a step towards helping or spreading awareness towards the environmental issues that we face today. And we can find a lot of local youth-led movements all around the world, and especially with the power of social media, just by reposting Instagram stories, just making aware that these issues are prevalent is a step already and I feel like the most important thing we can do if you're of age if you're 18 um, is to get politically active and vote 
And even though it's important to take action to reduce our individual carbon footprints, we also need to focus on changing the larger system. And that's where we have the greatest opportunity to reduce these emissions. Um, vote for leaders at all levels of government who take climate change seriously, and they should commit to get, setting science-based targets to reduce harmful carbon emissions and implementing clear plans to reach those targets and even adapting to climate change and shifting a clean, to a clean energy economy. And also to make sure that you are registered to vote and get informed for all elections, not just the ones that, you know, get the most media attention like Biden and Trump. And candidates' position on climate change um, can vary really widely. So be sure to do research on these parties if you're Republican or Democrat and um, anything in between and ask questions about climate change at town hall meetings or debates. I mean, COVID's still a thing, so wear your mask. And just let your candidates know you're voting for the climate. And just know that your vote really matters. And if you're too young to vote, just encourage your class or school to join a student vote program. I know Mira Mesa has one. Um, a lot of people in my, in my grade are um, a part of it. It's when we all vote. San Diego, so go check that out. And these student vote programs provide students the opportunity to experience participation in the election process, even though they're not old enough to vote. And you can even talk to your parents about the importance of voting for climate action so they can vote. Wow, that was really inspiring and motivating. And I've really loved listening to what you've had to say today. And to our listeners, if you are interested in learning more about this topic, or if you would like to hear more from Valerie, please check out our website. Valerie wrote an incredible and extensive article on redlining and environmentalism, and it can be found there at usevoicesfirst.weebly.com. Well, that's about it for us today. Thank you, Valerie. We really enjoyed hearing what you had to say. Yes, thank you for having me. And to our listeners, thank you for tuning in. See you next time on FIRST. Thank you.